0: Most of their training was done with 65 to 85 percent of their one RM. Uh, So actually, what we would consider a pretty light uh, training is is what they thrived off of, and they were. uh, The research was empirical. They they tried uh, implemented a uh, new routine or variation on routine on a group, and they looked at what the results were. And the results were world championships, gold medals, um, success uh, on. The particular endeavor uh, that they were trying to trying to improve, and they pursued it to an extent, I, I remember, I think it's in one of Pavel's books, where uh, there was actually a branch of, of schooling. It was the uh, school for analyzing special problems in jumping. Um, so yeah. they actually had a branch of study and endeavor into optimizing uh, jump performance. And, and you can imagine long jump, high jump, you know, things of that nature. Uh, so they, they really, uh, they would dive in uh, to a, a very deep level, uh, optimizing um, whatever particular aspect of human performance that they were looking for.
1: Hi, I'm Pete McCall. And welcome to the All About Fitness Podcast. (laughs) You guessed it, that voice you heard in the beginning is the guest for this episode, Mr. Brett Jones. Now, before I get into the full introduction for Brett, I gotta tell you, this is a flashback back to the rack episode. I recorded this interview with Brett back in 2017, right when I was first starting the podcast. I started in 2016, did a little bit of work on it, didn't really do that much with it. I think I released about one episode a month And it was more of just kind of learning, I was learning my way around it. And as I got into 2017, I started doing more and more interviews with some really good quality leaders in fitness and strength and conditioning. So what I'm going to be doing over the next month, two, three months, is bringing back some of those episodes. Because as the audience for All About Fitness has been growing, what happens, at least with my my account, some of the older episodes drop off. And this is really good information. And what Brett and I talk about today, we'll go into that for a minute. If you're a fan of All About Fitness, if you could do me a favor, reach down, hit subscribe, follow All About Fitness. I'm trying to put out maybe four to six episodes a month. These full-length interviews along with little short, quick fit tips to give you a little something to think about along the way. I'm trying to build the numbers here. I'm trying to bring more information out to more people. And I'm looking ahead to make some real exciting changes to the podcast by the end of the year and by the beginning of 2021. And to do that, I I need as much help as I can get. And the help that you can provide is hit subscribe, or if you could do me a favor, reach down and give me a 20, 30, 50 star review. (laughs) You know, whatever review you feel like is appropriate, I would appreciate it. You know how this works, folks. Reviews are the lifeblood of small content creators like myself. The more reviews we get, the higher up in the search rankings we go, and you know the deal. Anyway, let's get into it with Brett Jones. Brett is a director of education for an organization called Strong First. Brett has a really interesting background, he's actually an athletic trainer. A lot of times we hear the term athletic trainer, and we might think of personal trainer. We might think of strength coach. Well, an athletic trainer does something different. Now, Brett also happens to be a certified strength coach. If you ever see the letter CSCS after somebody's name, who's writing an article or being interviewed for an article, the CSCS stands for Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist. That's a certification by the National Strength and Conditioning Association that qualifies as strength coaches. Any collegiate level, any professional level strength coach has that CSCS credential. And what Brett and I talk about today is how we became involved in Strong First and what the benefits of serious strength training are. Really, this is a conversation about strength training, weightlifting, serious training, the reason why we need to rest, the reason why we don't need to push ourselves to the limit with every workout. It's a really fascinating interview based on the science of exercise. More specifically, based on the science of how the body adapts to exercise. The founder of Strong First is one of the leading educators in the industry, a fellow by the name of Pavel, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. He's Russian. He's really, we can credit Pavel, if you've ever swung a kettlebell anytime in the last 25 years or so, we can credit Pavel with introducing or or reintroducing. Technically, kettlebells were already here, But Pavel helped reintroduce kettlebell training to the United States at the end of the 20th century and at the beginning of this one. However, before we get into the interview, a little reminder, I don't take outside advertising dollars on All About Fitness. I don't put content behind a paywall. If you really want to support All About Fitness, look below in the show notes. I got workout programs for sale. They're not that expensive. They're eight-week workout programs. I got a dumbbell workout, a kettlebell conditioning workout, and I have a functional core training workout. I also have a couple of ebooks I've put together. I have a dynamic anatomy ebook. I have a course on glute training called Glute Reboot that I did with my friend Abby Apple. I'm also getting ready to post a course on core training. And guys, I'm so excited about this. My latest ebook is done, the latest course is almost done. I got a little more work to do on it, and then it'll be ready to release. It's how exercise is a fountain of youth and can slow down the aging process. That's right, the course is going to be called Exercise Program Design for the Fountain of Youth. It's how you can design exercise programs that help slow down the effects of time on your body. That's what this podcast is all about, and that's the information I'm trying to deliver to you. None of these programs are more than $25, $30. I'm trying to keep them very reasonably priced. A lot of great information, a lot of stuff to help you enhance your quality of life. And if you're a certified fitness professional, yes, there are CECs, meaning you can earn continuing education, some of these courses. So check down below in the show notes. All that aside, I appreciate your support. Originally recorded in the spring of 2017, it's Brett Jones, the Director of Education for Strong First. About fitness, I'm on the line today with Brett Jones from Strong First. Brett, can you give us a little bit of information about your background? Pete, it's great to have the chance to talk to you and your audience today.
0: Um, so the, the long story of me kept uh, kept medium to, uh, to brief. I have a background as uh, an athletic trainer. And so my uh, Bachelor of Science in Sports Medicine, Masters in Rehabilitative Sciences um, have been working either as an athletic trainer in the fitness industry for over 20 years. Um, I originally... Got certified with uh, Pavel um, when he was part of the RKC back in February of 2002. And then in April of 03, I started teaching with Pavel um, uh, as a senior instructor and have continued to work with him for about 14 years now. And uh, now is uh, the chief instructor for Strong First. So also hold the uh, NSCA CSCS uh, certification and do uh, present at their conferences uh, as well, and also work with uh, functional movement systems.
1: Part of their advisory board and been traveling and teaching with them for coming on 11 years now. Cool. And then, so uh, what was your introduction to, to kettlebells? I mean, and real quick, before we go into that, what I want to do with the audience is cause you use the term athletic trainer. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes there's a little bit of confusion between personal trainer and athletic trainer. And I think sometimes people might use the term athletic trainer thinking they're talking about a personal trainer. What's the difference? Yes. What exactly does an athletic trainer do? Okay. Uh, It's a great question. Um, Athletic trainers uh,
0: have a four-year undergraduate degree, which leads to a national certification through the National Athletic Trainers Association. We are skilled in orthopedic evaluation, rehabilitation, uh, initial treatment, recognition treatment, uh, and rehabilitation of athletic injuries. So when you watch a football game and somebody runs out on the field to take care of a, an injured athlete, whether that be you know, um, spine boarding somebody for a neck injury or sprained ankle, uh, everything from a, a stuffy nose to making sure everybody's properly hydrated and, and everything of that nature, that's going to be your athletic training staff.
1: And I just want to make that clear because there's there's a specific schooling that athletic trainers have to go to. You have to have a four year degree. You have to go through the credential from the it was a National Athletic NATA National Athletic Trainers Association. Yes, which is different than personal training. So I just wanted so it's a much more in depth knowledge base than personal trainers. So when you first what was your when you first saw kettlebells, what got you interested in them? How'd you get how'd you get uh, peaked? Or how was your curiosity engaged? So I was running a. House, uh, Sorry, uh, apparently I haven't had enough
0: coffee today. Uh, I was running a hospital uh, fitness center, uh, wellness center in Clarion, PA, and uh, had gotten interested in one of Pavel's other, one of his first books, Power to the People, which was uh, an abbreviated strength training uh, book, uh, kind of the antithesis of the typical uh, bodybuilding style uh, of training. And, uh, of course, the marketing machine kicked in, and I started getting all the flyers and information, and he came out with his uh, Russian Kettlebell Challenge book. And so I got it, and I looked at it, and I I can do all this with a dumbbell, and I threw it in a drawer. Uh, True story. And then about two or three months later, I pulled it back out, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, ah, I don't know. So I hooked up one of the things in there. They talk about doing snatches with the kettlebell, the czar of kettlebell lifting, the the kettlebell snatch. And so I uh, hooked up a 50-pound dumbbell um, and when decided to try some snatches. And when the EMS crew was uh, through reviving me, I thought – it would be really good. And that's a joke, by the way, for, <laughs> for, for your audience who may yeah. be uh, listening to me for the first time. I have, a, uh, I have a sense of humor. At least I think it's funny. And uh, so I had a very intense uh, experience with some dumbbell snatches, according to some protocols that he had had in the original book, and decided that I should really get some training in this. And so I went to the second-ever uh, certification that he held in the States, Uh, which was in February of 2002.
1: And did you think, because I got into, it's funny that you bring up Power to the People, because I picked that up, and I picked up uh, the Russian Kettlebell Challenge and did my first kettlebell workshop in 2003. And I forget where I'd read about Pavel or or where I'd first seen it, but it it was something that that interested me. And so I I didn't do a workshop with him, but I did did one with somebody else and got interested in it. And I have to admit, Brett, that, that in 2003, if you told me by 2012 or 2014, that that we been we'd have been selling kettlebells in Target and Walmart's, I would have thought you were crazy because at that time, you know, kettlebells were. were what, what did people think when they first saw you training with kettlebells? What was the reaction you had?
0: Well, it, it was. It was truly the 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 bleeding edge of the cutting edge of uh, what was going on at the time, and and you got some strange looks. You know that you didn't find them in the gym. You were usually training at home or bringing your own kettlebell into wherever uh, you were going to be, and so people look at it and oh, you're going to hurt your back, and you know there was just a nobody knew uh, what they were, and early on the the first groups to really grab hold of kettlebell training and, and use it were uh, military, law enforcement, um, what we refer to now as tactical athletes, um, which I think most of the tactical community uh, may or may not appreciate that uh, that, that yeah. tag, yeah. Um, a- and martial artists. And so the initial groups coming through were, were pretty hard-driving uh, individuals. They were looking for something to benefit uh, them either from um, I'm going to call it a survival standpoint within you know tactical communities and and wanting to be well prepared for uh, a variety of uh, events that could happen um, to the martial artist who wanted to have better conditioning uh, for sparring for fights uh, and to strike harder and and last longer so. Uh, those were the initial groups, and it was so it was a pretty hardcore group, and we got a small number of fitness professionals through. And nowadays, that number is really flipped. Uh, we are really heavy on the fitness professional end of things, uh, which I think is great, because when you can when you can get a, a fitness professional using a new tool or a new concept, uh, you're going to touch many people, all of their clients, and then you know down the road. So um, I've been kind of happy with the progression into the fitness industry
1: and I think and I think it's been a good one and what should people look for when if if people if somebody listening is considering you know they've seen people use kettlebells in the gym and maybe their gym has some kettlebells and they 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 kind of they're interested in it and you're curious what should people look for when considering a, a kettlebell program so I, I'm
0: gonna Obviously, I'm the chief instructor for Strong First, and have invested uh, 14 years of my career in working with Pavel, and so I'm going to be very biased in saying that uh, we should uh, be looking for a Strong First instructor. Uh, when somebody goes through our program, um, there are uh, standards and testing that they must uh, accomplish uh, through the course of the weekend and maintain. Uh, over their recertifications to maintain those, those standards. So we look for people that can not only coach and teach and have safety as the primary focus of, of their coaching and teaching, uh, we, we look for those people that can do. Uh, they're going to be able to show you uh, what good technique looks like they're going to have your safety uh, foremost in mind, and there are, there are other kettlebell groups out there that do a great job. Um, I'm just going to be very, <laughs> very open about my bias, and I'm, I'm going to say that that's the group that uh, that we look for. And um, you know, looking uh, strongfirst.com, we have a um, instructor locator that that goes by zip code, so you can find uh, instructors that are in your area, and we have instructors that do online training. So. I think one of the great things that has happened in the last five, six years or so is uh, via mediums like Skype and Zoom and and FaceTime, uh, online training has now, it's no longer just a a pre-written program that somebody's emailing to you. Uh, I I, I and and others actually get online. I watch you move. uh, I can do movement evaluations. I can coach your technique. Uh, So that when I write a program for you, I know it's exercises that you've, uh, that you have experience with. And I've checked your form. So uh, there's, there's safety in the, in the execution.
1: All right. Sorry to cut in here, but I am super excited about this. I've been planning this for a while. I'm getting ready to launch it soon. Please check down below in the show notes. Yes. I've been promoting my book, Smarter Workouts through the podcast, But starting soon, I'm going to be doing in-home training using Smarter Workouts. I'm putting up together a six-week workout program, a six-week home exercise program, where I will be coaching you via Zoom of how to do workouts from the book Smarter Workouts. The price is still being determined. I'm looking at pricing a little bit less than $200. So it's going to be 18 sessions over six weeks, three sessions a week. If you can't make the live session, They will be recorded. You will have access to that. What we'll do is we'll go through different workouts each week and I will teach you how to progress the workouts on your own. Think of it as about 80% of a workout group and 20% book club where you can ask questions. You can get feedback about what you want to learn about designing exercise programs. And since we'll be doing it via Zoom, I'll be coming into your house. I can help you learn how to use the exercise equipment you have much more efficiently. That's going to be the Smarter Workouts Small Group Training Program coming soon via Zoom. Check below in the show notes. Go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's PeteMcCallFitness.com. Sign up for the mailing list. I will send you a chapter of Smarter Workouts, and you'll be kept up to date on the small group training programs. Hey, what a great way you can get in shape and learn how to exercise on your own all at the same time. So all you got to do is one six-week workout program with me. I will teach you how to design exercise programs that work for you and your body. Now, let's get back to the interview. And I want to go back for a second because we've, we've said the name Pavel. Can you give us a little bit of background about kind of who he is and a little bit about he comes from, I mean, he, he grew up in the Soviet Union and, came in, and developed in the Soviet Union. Let's talk a little bit about why that's so important and how that sets him apart from other strength professionals that might be working in the States. Absolutely, uh, Pavel uh, moved over uh, during the Glasnost period.
0: Those of us that are old enough to remember uh, the the Glasnost period, uh, where uh, the the wall would come down and, and Russia was was in transition, and uh, Pavel was able to come over at that time. He had uh, uh, grew up in a military family and then was in the military himself, progressing on to be a uh, physical training instructor for his Spetsnaz. Group And when you do that over there, you go through an intense amount of schooling to be able to, to have that role so that you're well prepared to be in, in charge uh, of, of the physical fitness of a group like that. And his group uh, was interested in, and participated in what we would term martial artists, would term hard style martial arts uh kyoshin uh karate uh, and i'm mispronouncing that because i i, I don't kyoshin ken uh, karate i'm again i'm mispronouncing it but it's a hard style karate that's based on a lot of hard strikes and um uh, it, it it certainly brings with it a lot of our uh hard style uh focus in uh generating tension and being able to um uh, effectively bring your strength uh to an activity so uh, when he came over to the States, he had a variety of jobs, and then uh, because he had the background in fitness, he, he ended up uh, becoming a trainer in the area. And then through uh, meeting um, John DeCane and, and having some books published, he um, started teaching workshops, and that, that led to – me myself getting involved in and in us uh, but his, his background and, and and depth of knowledge in the area is uh he he blows past me in the first five minutes of a conversation i mean it's it's i got to tell him to slow down all the time so that i can keep up so he has a is an incredible depth of knowledge in in just the human physiology
1: and training and, and that's one thing that i don't think people realize because you know we we're so clouded that those of us that grew up in 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 the US and got into fitness early on I mean I think probably we can both agree That the the Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding By Schwarzenegger was probably one of the first books I know that was the first book I bought Um, And when you look at what the Soviets were doing, the Soviets, when the Soviets looked at human physiology, whether you were a worker, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a soldier, you belong to the state. So the Soviets had the best research and data going back, you know, 60 years now about human performance. So what is it about the Soviet method or, or, or kind of that Eastern method of training that's so different from what we've done here in the West?
0: Well, and I think this will segue perfectly into some of our, the rest of our, uh, conversations, um, in the, in the old Russian, um, Olympic weightlifting method. So the, yeah, the, the, the old Russian machine was based on winning gold medals and, and showing some superiority, uh, over the West. And, um, so, but there it's, it's kind of counter, I guess it's counterintuitive, um, the, there was a Bulgarian system which relied on much heavier uh, weight training but the Soviet system really most of their training was done with 65 to 85 percent of their 1rM uh, so actually what we would consider a pretty light uh, training is is what they thrived off of and they were uh, the research was empirical they they tried uh, implemented a uh, new routine or a variation on a routine on a group, and they looked at what the results were. And the results were world championships, gold medals, um, success uh, on the particular endeavor uh, that they were trying to trying to improve. And they pursued it to an extent, I, I remember, I think it's in one of Pavel's books where, um, or this was a conversation with him where we talked about the fact that uh, there was actually a branch of, of schooling um, and the Russian uh, names are not as, as concise as, I, as ours. Um, it was the, I'm trying to get this right, it was the uh, School for Analyzing Special Problems in Jumping. <laughs> um, so yeah. they actually had a branch of study and endeavor into optimizing uh, jump performance. And, and you can imagine long jump, high jump, you know things of that nature. Uh, so they they really uh, they would dive in uh, to a, a very deep level uh, optimizing um, whatever particular aspect of human performance that they were looking for.
1: And that's much different than what we did here in the West because at that time in the 60s and 70s, well first of all, in the 60s, not many people were outside of the bodybuilding community were weightlifting. And even in the 70s, and what I think people don't realize um, often, Brett, is that professional athletes you know, in the States were told not to lift weights. I mean, the thought was that professional athletes wouldn't lift weights because it would slow them down. Meanwhile at the same time the Soviets were doing as you as you mentioned mountains of research on how strength training can improve human performance and so I think Soviets the Soviets brought such a technical skill and understanding to exercise physiology so that when you had you know when glasnost occurred and you had people like Pavel coming over here it kind of blew the doors off of what we were doing fitness wise so what what is it about um, the Russian method of kettlebell training what's why is that um, such a Kind of a, a precise approach to kettlebell training, and what are the benefits of it?
0: So, and, and as far as kettlebell training goes, there's um, there's many different styles. Um, there's a competitive sport aspect called Gear Voice Sport, uh, so it is an internationally contested um, form of, of competition, and uh, you're going to see some very different techniques in there. The techniques that we teach with an SFG the Pavel's uh, brought to us were certainly more directed towards uh, not only optimizing conditioning but uh, strength and power production. So, um, I would probably one of the most concise ways that I can put it is that we look at safety as part of proper performance. Uh, we don't perform an activity and then hope to be safe. Uh, we think that uh, proper form, proper execution, uh, technique, um, programming, these these are all aspects of safety, and how we approach uh, training for the individual. So uh, you know, just right there, I think there's a there's a focus on on not only optimizing performance, power, strength, uh, but also on safety, because so we just look at that as part of the same package. Um, the the training is certainly focused on uh, having a, uh, a utilitarian aspect to it, where it's uh, very efficient. Um, and um, get, gets us uh, to our goals so that we can go do other stuff. Um, I've also been fortunate to work with uh, Dr. Uh, Ed Thomas. And um, you know, when you look at old time physical culture, um, there was uh, the martial, which was the ability to respond appropriately to aggression, there was the uh, restorative. Uh, which was uh, meant to bring us back to center because when you study uh, the martial aspects and you're learning how to be either be a good soldier or martial artist or whatever the case may be, uh, in the aspect of sparring and training, you can get kind of, quote, knocked off center. Uh, you take some dings and you got to be able to come back to center, recover from your training. Um, and then there was the, uh, the pedagogical, uh, theoretical body of knowledge that supported the other two. Um, fitness has become our martial art in the States. Uh, it's where we go, uh, to prove or perform, uh, to, to a certain extent, instead of getting fit to go do something else, fitness has become a goal unto itself. And, uh, that, that I think that brings with it certain unique, uh, aspects. Um, certainly everyone should exercise. Everyone should be, Uh, quote, fit, and, you know, fit is a, that's a very broad term that that we could spend a whole other podcast on. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that that idea that fitness is what we do instead of something we do to be able to go do something else, uh, whether that's play tennis or hike or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, Certainly, if you're training military law enforcement, you know, their goal is to use fitness to support their other endeavors. Uh, so we uh, kind of keep that in mind as far as uh, our training.
1: And I think that's, you know, I think that's an important thing because what people lose sight of is that we originally training started with a purpose, as you mentioned, just to support a specific sport or specific activity. And just so you know, what I try to, you know, get people thinking about if I do a lecture or when I'm working with clients is I, I, my definition is fitness is having the ability to do what you want to do. And so if you're a, you know, if you're the guy going in, if you're the first guy in on a, on a SWAT team, or if you're an EMT working a scene, or if you're a mom trying to care for three kids running around your house, that kind of, you know, kind of sets it up for having the ability to do what it is that you want to do now, you know, to come into it and talk about strength training, because I think a lot of people get a little concerned or a little bit, um, I don't want to say overwhelmed, but a little bit intimidated by strength training what is, you know, I know strong first advocates that, you know, barbells, kettlebells and body weight. What, mm-hmm. is, what are the benefits of strength training, especially during the aging process? Cause I mean, we're all getting a little bit older every day. And I think, especially <laughs> for people a little bit older, they might, they might be a little intimidated about, about strength training, but what are some of the benefits for people in their forties and fifties um, from picking up a heavy weight? So, uh,
0: we can go at that from, from two directions. Um, There's research that shows that uh, maintaining good grip strength is an indicator of living independently into our later years, kind of an indicator that strength allows us to live independently longer. Um, Past the age of 35, we're typically losing upwards of a half pound of muscle mass a year. Uh, Age-related sarcopenia or the loss of muscle mass uh, starts to kick in, and it's gradual at first. You know, if you're a 35 year old and and you you lose, you know, whatever a quarter pound of muscle because your activity levels have dropped, uh, it's not going to be really noticeable. Uh, by the time you're 55, 60, 65 years old and you haven't done anything to counteract that loss, um, then then things are really starting to to head the wrong direction, and you're definitely going to notice uh, that age related muscle loss. You're going to notice the decrease in metabolism, the decrease in strength. Uh, the inability to kind of do some things that you want uh, to be able to do. So strength training is one of those things that uh, we certainly approach strength training a little bit more from a neurological standpoint. And I say that because when you bring Pavel's background of training military people and uh, the being heavy wasn't always a benefit when you were uh, in a military or martial art situation. Um you wanted to be quick. You wanted to be light. You wanted to be strong and powerful, uh, able to endure. And, uh, if you were really heavy, that could mean that you were slowing people down, which is not the best from a, a military or you know, martial perspective. Certainly in the States, uh, fitness and strength training became very tied into bodybuilding. And, you know, the only reason you would pick up a weight would be to get bigger. Um, that's not necessarily everyone's goal. Um, but we can enhance people's strength by optimizing certain neurological aspects of strength training. And then we just add some volume in order to uh, hit the muscle building uh, end of things. And like I said, with the kind of the old uh, Soviet methods and everything, uh, the training uh, wasn't always, quote, heavy. And that's a perspective thing. I remember Marty Gallagher talking about his uh, powerlifting coach, uh, Hugh Castillo, Walking by a bar at a powerlifting meet, they were there um, handling or, or managing another lifter. And the bar was loaded to 500 pounds. And Hugh walked in, dress clothes, you know, whatever street clothes he was in, uh, squatted 10 times, 500 for 10, uh, racked it and walked away. And Marty was like, That was amazing. And his resp- uh, Castry's response was, It's just 500 pounds. Now, to put that into perspective, his one RM at the time was a thousand. So for him, that was a fifty percent one RM effort. Um, so heavy always goes in quotation marks. Um, that's strength displays itself in many different ways, and you know the the one RM uh, while it's the. Um, mathematical basis for some of the things that we do we f- we fully
1: understand that, that strength uh, lives in many different ways and just for listeners 1RM means 1 rep max that's generally how yes. we classify how much weight a person can lift so in that example being able to do a thousand pounds would be your one RM, and and what what I also think is important to point out is that a lot of times strength has nothing to do with muscle size. Would you agree with that? Is that because you can look at people who are very strong and and you know like Pavel bring somebody in that example, and there are other people that are incredibly strong but they don't look big like we normally. Because I think when people think of strength, they think of these overly muscular bodybuilding types. So what it is, I mean, what's the difference between like training for strength? And training for size. I mean, how does that how does that work when, when it comes down to actual weightlifting and putting it into practice? Definitely,
0: I, you know, if we look at it from either an Olympic lifting perspective or a powerlifting perspective, and so differentiating those two, uh, Olympic lifting being the competition of clean and jerk and bar, barbell clean and jerk and snatch. Powerlifting being the um, bench press squat deadlift for a maximum uh, attempt in competition. Um, Powerlifting may be not the most aptly named considering it's strength lifting and Olympic lifting is more power-based. But um, you have competitors in those sports who spend a career at the same weight class. Uh, you can look up the pocket Hercules, do a Google search on the Olympic lifter, the pocket Hercules, who was about 130-some-odd pounds and, and stayed in that category for a significant period of his career, setting world records and constantly increasing his strength. Um, we tend to think if you lift weights, you get bigger, and that's the only way to get stronger. Uh, whereas you can look at Olympic lifting and powerlifting, and you can see athletes uh, who maintain the same weight class uh, Judd Biasado uh, is another good example um, who had a world record squat of um, over 600 pounds at 132 pounds. Um, a, a staggering, just mentally, just mind-boggling uh, lift. Uh, but he did that at competing at a weight of 132 Um, So uh, bodybuilding kind of gave us the impression here in the States that uh, if you lift weights, you get bigger, and that's the only way to get stronger. Uh, If we optimize the motor patterns, the neurological aspect of uh, strength, we can continue to get stronger um, for a significant period of time, um, regardless of of gaining size. Gaining size becomes, at a certain point, uh, a matter of adding volume to the routine. Most of your good, just strength based routines that don't add a lot of size are actually pretty low in volume. We're just uh, and pretty consistent, uh, meaning we can train the same lift uh, way more times a week than we traditionally think of uh, training a muscle part or a body part, uh, muscle or body part here in the States. um, Your training can be very consistent multiple times a week.
1: And I think, you know, it comes back to, you did a a great job of bringing that back around because you talk about the technical movement and when we move well, and I know you work with Gray with functional movements, um, functional movement systems, when we move well, then we're recruiting all the muscle fibers to produce force when it's necessary. And so I think that that's one thing that people don't think about often because I think when when the average person is like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym and work out, they don't they don't understand the fact that exercise is a component or exercise is a function of movement. You know, why is it so important to, to, to work on movement first before going and trying to pick up a weight or trying to do a, a lift?
0: I'm going to go two directions on this because, um, we at strong first really feel that strength is a skill and we treat our strength training practice as skill practice where you, t- I think in the U.S., or, or I think it's typically thought of that if I'm working on a skill, maybe I'm shooting baskets or I'm a golfer on the range uh, working on their swing. Uh, we treat execution of a bench press, a military press, a squat, whatever the case may be, as a skill that we want to enhance and learn better. And when you look at some of the EMG research, the um, an inexperienced lifter uh, if you look at the EMG where we want to have these smooth transitions between muscle groups, uh, it looks like somebody who's trying to learn how to drive a stick, right? We've all been in that co- Well, not nowadays. It's actually hard to find a car that's a manual uh, versus an automatic. But if you've ever been in a car with somebody who's trying to learn how to drive a manual, there's there's some rough transitions <laughs> between gears, right? You're getting yeah, jerked yeah. back and forth and and the car stalls and things like that. Well, that's the inexperienced lifter on the emg of something like a bench press and the bench press is deceptively simple yet a very high skill activity once you take it uh, to that point Whereas when you look at the EMG of a, an experienced lifter, when we want those smooth transitions from the lats to the chest, to the shoulders, to the triceps, we're kind of optimizing that pressing groove, you see very smooth transitions between all of those muscle groups and, and positions in the, in the bench press. Um, it's more like being in the car with a Formula One driver, where you can't f- even feel the shift of gears, you just go faster. Um, That's what we're looking for from a strength uh, as skill perspective uh, where we're optimizing those transitions to tie in the movement uh, when you have a restriction in in a movement pattern, uh, when you lack the just basic movement skill uh, competency or fundamental movement uh, abilities, uh, you have artificial breaks on your skill and strength development. Um, It's harder to learn how to do something well if you've got a parking brake on. So now imagine the Formula One driver uh, with a parking brake uh, on all the time. Uh, They're not going to win the race. It's going to be a very uh, um, challenging thing to do. So the idea of being able to move well before we move often simply means just move well enough so you can adapt to your training. And that's really all we're looking for. Uh, Take the parking brakes off. Let's make sure that you move well enough. And uh, that's something that uh, Pavel, you know, as we started teaching more and more people, and we started seeing people coming in with uh, some typical um, restrictions, a little bit kyphotic, a little bit too much time sitting behind the desk working on the computer, T-spine gets a little uh, tight or the hips get tight because we're seated. And for something like the kettlebell swing, where we really want to be able to reach zero at the hips, extend the hips um, as far as we can in a symmetrical stance movement like the the kettlebell deadlift or swing, um, we started having people come in who couldn't fully extend their hips. They were too restricted in the anterior chain. Um, so we had to start incorporating things to help, uh, people move well enough to be able to get the benefit from things like the kettlebell, um, swing and, and
1: deadlift. And what are a couple of movements that somebody could do to kind of, un- so when, when people are stuck at a desk for hours a day, what are one or two little movements that somebody could do coming into the gym to kind of undo the, from being in a seated position for most of the day?
0: So for myself, I'm, I'm going to say um, it's more than one or two things. Um, if you're in that situation, and my job over the last couple of years has become more computer-based. I'm doing administrative work within Strong First and FMS and things of that nature. So I spend a lot of time writing and typing. And when did email become a job?
1: Yeah, I totally get it, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's days where I sit down and I don't accomplish anything other than answering emails. And I end the day going... What was that? Like it was effective. I had to do it. But when did this become work? Yeah. Um, so foam roller, a little bit of soft tissue work. Um, it's not self-myofascial. It's, not, it's, it's just a nice way to uh, work on a little soft tissue quality. Uh, so I'm going to recommend a nice basics um, uh, foam roller or soft tissue uh, routine. Uh, That just kind of gives us an opportunity to shake the Etch-a-Sketch. And and for the kids that might be listening who don't know what an Etch-a-Sketch is, if you go to the app store, there's about 30 different uh, Etch-a-Sketch apps that you can download. uh, And then you'll know what it is. Uh, But, you know, you draw the picture, and then if you didn't like it, you shake the Etch-a-Sketch. So the soft tissue work and a little bit of um, joint mobility work, uh, we tend to call it dynamic warm-up nowadays, Um, between those two things, we get a chance to shake the etch-a-sketch and during our training, we can draw a new picture and hopefully if we keep drawing that new picture, it sticks around, um, for much longer. So, uh, once you're, you've done a little soft tissue work and you know, your joint mobility or dynamic warm up should include things that make sure that your hips are extending fully, that you have a good base of mobility at the ankle, hips and T-spine and, um, Ground Force Method and a couple of other um, schools of, of movement uh, are are good ways to just have efficient routines that check in on that. And that's something that Pavel always brought with him. You know, it wasn't just one thing. Pavel has super joints and fast and loose and relax and to stretch. And the idea that uh, he, he always looks at me funny when I tell him people are not stretching for a half hour three times a week. Like that blows his mind that people are not dedicating a half hour, 45 minutes, three or four days a week to their flexibility. Um, We tend to – that's the thing that gets cut from all the the routines. And, of course, if you spend any time on the interwebs, uh, stretching is about uh, next to – Animal sacrifice—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's like a bad, bad thing to
1: do. And and and, and I think that you know that, that you point out something good. So it's something that could be doing. You know, some people could be doing. I know. You know, all of us probably could be doing a little bit more of it. You know, I I try to take the opportunity personally, Brad. if I'm sometimes watching TV in the evening with my kids, I start, you know, stretching a little bit on the floor. The only downside is they want to help me and usually end up jumping on me, which is usually, it usually helps them with some, some, if I'm doing a hip stretch, it can usually help me into a range of motion, sometimes a little bit too much, but that type of stuff. Is important, but you said something that, that's critical here. You talk about relaxing into a movement, and, and we have yes. a few more minutes here. But what do you mean by relaxing into the movement? Because I think so often we focus on the force production part. But what's the counter? What's what's the, the opposite of that, and why is that so important?
0: When you look at some of the research, uh, and this I believe again comes out of some of the Russian research, the difference between an elite performer and an average performer was the elite performer. Uh, whether it's a martial artist or what a boxer or whatever the case may be, um, the elite performer has the ability to go from tension to relaxation 800% faster than the average uh, performer. So we tend to think of, of strength as something that is restrictive instead of something that is powerful. Uh, and what turns strength into power is the ability to relax Stu McGill has the research where he shows that uh, high-level uh, MMA fighters, uh, when they throw a kick or a punch, you have this initial pulse of uh, energy that's produced, and then you have this intense relaxation, and then when the blow is delivered, you, you get tight again to deliver your force. Um, so athletically, we want this ability to experience, to get tight, to have these pulses, of power production, followed by these periods of relaxation that allow us to efficiently get our power to our target. Uh, Whether that's a tennis racket hitting a ball, whether that's me swinging a kettlebell, whether that's a martial artist throwing a kick, uh, we want to be able to have these uh, alternating periods of tension and relaxation. Um, So there are ways to develop uh, that ability to um, have that uh, tension and relaxation—it's one of the things we teach at Strong First. And whether that's kettlebell course, barbell course, um, or the uh, bodyweight course, uh, we work on being able to get tense and relax. Uh, because um, even if you're not a martial artist, you know you're not concerned with delivering a great kick. Um, I'm sure you know some of the people listening are like, "Yeah, that's not my thing," um, and that's cool. Uh, but Even if you're doing your own strength training, Uh, strength training develops tension. Tension uh, within a muscle can restrict blood flow. So residual tension maintains a little bit of restriction of that blood flow. So your recovery between sets or between workouts is better if we learn how to not only get tense but also relax so that blood flow uh, is encouraged and uh, recovery is actually better. And, and on
1: that note, with recovery, what in your mind are, are a couple of important things, important components of recovery? Because that's another thing I tried to, to drive home with, with this podcast is get people thinking about your time in the gym is only one, maybe 45 minutes to 75 minutes of a day. You have about 23 other hours or 160 hours in a week. That you're not exercising and recovery strategies play a key role. So, what are some of the, you know the kind of recovery strategies that, that um, Strong First promotes, so that you try to get people thinking about to help them, you know, develop their strength? So, uh, I'm actually going
0: to go in, in a direction that may, might not be expected. Your programming one of the one of the best ways to make sure you're recovering well is to make sure your program isn't taking you past your Uh, ability to recover. So your programming kicks in. We love burning the engine hot. Uh, We love going in the gym and getting exhausted and feeling like, God, that was such a great workout. When was the last time you went in the gym and had a purposefully easy workout where everything was within within your abilities and you actually left the gym thinking, "Eh, I feel pretty good. I could do more, but I'm not going to. Like, that should happen. That should actually happen more than the days where you're burning the engine hot. I enjoy a, a, a good, demanding workout as much as anybody else, and I still have those in my routine. But certainly, now that I'm 45 and I, I have some mileage, um, I've really only ever had one really exercise related um, situation injury in, in my uh, career. Uh, I've had many other things happen that have taken me out of being able to work out and have impacted my fitness and, and uh, movement, um, but um, the, the the number of training days where we're burning the engine hot should be a small percentage of uh, your overall training volume, uh, 15, 10 to 15% of your training. The rest of it should be—I um, reference it previously—in that sixty-five to eighty percent, eighty-five percent effort range, where um, the workouts are manageable. The workouts feel good. Dare I say, you leave the gym feeling better than when you walked in. Um, that's one of the first recovery strategies that that I would recommend to people: is make sure your programming's right. If uh, if you're burning the engine hot all the time, and we fell into that trap because we wanted time-efficient workouts. Like the fitness industry responded to this idea that I've got 20 minutes at lunch, get me fit. Yeah, that that was the driving force behind fitness for quite a few years. Um, it ignored the aerobic base. It ignored the time put in to have skill enhancement, to uh, have proper rest periods between your strength training exercises, so that you can work on the strength um, in in the best way possible. So we became obsessed with these 15 to 30 minute routines that got it all done for us and you get you do you get great results for a while and then burning the engine hot all the time is just the same as taking your car out and burning the engine hot all the time it doesn't last that long and so uh that's the first recovery strategy and then things i'm sure you've talked about with your audience as far as sleep and nutrition and uh and
1: having easy or recovery weeks And that's, you know, I could give you a huge bro hug right now because that's always been, I've been an instructor for, you know, group fitness instructor for years doing, you know, gym stuff, you know, work circuit workouts, cycling classes and, and sports conditioning workouts. And I always tell people purposely, I'm like, look, I don't know what your full week is. I don't know what your full training schedule is. If you want to push yourself a little bit harder, you can, but my job is to get you training at about eighty percent of your max intensity right now, and I love it. And you know, when people, I love my 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 goal is I want people walking out of one of my fitness classes saying I feel good. You know, just what you just said, of, yep. I feel better today. I don't want you if you walk out of my class feeling crushed, Brett. I don't I don't know what else you got going on today. I don't know what other stuff you have going on. You might perceive that you need that feeling in order to get a good workout, and then you go to work, and now you, you get your boss dumps something on your lap. You have to be there till eleven o'clock at night. That just, that workout, you're not going to have time to recover from it. You're, it's not going to do you any physiological benefits, you know, because of other stuff going on. I'd rather have you going a little bit, you know, I'd rather have you training a little bit less, but train well and train smart than trying to go hard just for the sake of going hard. Absolutely. It is, it's a critical and it, it just flies, like I said, it
0: flies in the face of that. Get it done. Like I, I've got a half an hour. I need to get crushed. I need. I know I need to work hard. So let's knock it out, and I got to get on to everything else in my, in my life. And, and hey, there's times where, and you end up in this situation. I've ended up in this situation. Twenty minutes is all you've got. <laughs> like, yeah. It's it's just so in those times, I'm hitting some get-ups and some swings. I'll hit five or 10 minutes of get-ups. I'll hit five or 10 minutes of swings.
1: Bingo, bango. I'm done for the day. I was just and about I to, do walk away feeling better. And I was just about to ask, like, what's your go-to workout? I mean, and I know you're a huge proponent of Turkish get-ups, and I've, I've actually uh, I've written a couple articles on it and interviewed Gray, you know, had Gray uh, comment on it. And and so what is your go-to? If you don't have much time, is that it? Um, get up some swings. And how do you structure that? It it really is that simple. Um, and you, you
0: look at Pavel's most recent book with Simple and Sinister, um, it's, uh, you're building towards uh, 100 swings in five minutes. And don't misinterpret the test with the training. The training does not need to look like the test. I think that is a mind-bender for um, a lot of people who are doing their programming. Um, the training should actually be, uh, very manageable. So I might spend 10 or 15 minutes getting in some swings, uh, different sets and rep protocols, but always being sure that I'm recovering well, um, in between my sets and then hitting some getups. Uh, I can get five getups done each side, 10 getups total in five minutes. Um, it doesn't take that long. Um they're good quality get ups. I'm knocking out one every thirty seconds uh for five minutes. Now, there's days where I slow down and I'm only knocking out one per minute. So I only get done with five get ups, uh six get ups, you know, three on each side. Um so that that, that is my go to. Really simple. At, or uh there's an article on the Strong First site, strength aerobics where it's a clean, I know, oxymoronic, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's a clean, press, and squat, either with one or two kettlebells. And uh, so one rep, clean, press, squat, set it down, shake it off. When you're ready, left arm, clean, press, squat, set it down, shake it off. And then you just set a time frame. Maybe you set the timer for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever the case may be. Um, And you're just going to kind of rest as much as you need to, so the effort stays at that 60% effort, 70% effort level. Um, And you just knock out sets until the timer goes ding, and then you walk away and get on with whatever life has in store for you. But uh, the article's on the Strong First site. Um, Craig Marker, um, who I'd recommend uh, for, for a podcast Uh, For your your audience as well. Um, He has a great article uh, on the website about training for your level one or level two, uh, which gives you a great idea of the the principles and how we address uh, both conditioning and strength work uh, within the strong first uh, system.
1: And I think that that's what's so important, and that's why you know I really have a, have a huge respect for what you guys are doing, because you're doing you're you're bringing technical focus into an industry where sometimes I think we try to we have this mindset of doing more is better as opposed to doing it right and, and getting it right the first time. So if somebody wants to find out more about Strong First, what's the, what's the best way to do that? Strongfirst.com. And that's simple as that. And then are you, you have a, you you do a lot of speaking. What are, your, what are your big speaking engagements coming up? Yeah, it's funny. I um, I'm headed to the UK
0: Wednesday to teach uh, foundational strength, which is a uh, FMS and kettlebell kind of FMS and strong first together sort of workshop. Um, I'll be uh, teaching at a couple of strong first events during the year. Uh, teaching a level two in April, uh, level one in Denver. Um, another level one in Brazil in uh, October and, uh, then a variety of FMS workshops throughout the year. I'll be at the NSCA TSAC, uh, conference in April and, uh, the NSCA personal trainer conference again in October. I think it's in October. Um, so yeah, it's kind of all over the place and I'm just very fortunate, uh, very fortunate to
1: get to do this uh, as a job. And just when you're talking about that high volume, I you know, after interviewing Dan and reading through his book, Dan John, I've been playing with his um, try to get to 10,000 reps in a certain time period. And mm-hmm. only once in three weeks, um, I've, you know, his protocol calls for trying to do 500 swings in a workout and only once in the last three weeks, I've actually hit the 500 number. I've, I've shut myself down before because I'm just like, you know how you get to that point about you're like, eh, you, you hit that diminishing marginal utility. We're doing another rep. Isn't really going to do you any good um and that's just that's tough man i think that's really i think what i like about it personally is that that doing a different rep and set scheme is pushing me beyond a comfort limit limit of of where i was and that's why i think you guys do so well is you guys do it in such a smart way that people who might be a little bit bored or might be looking for something else in their training that you guys come at it from such a technical and such a smart way that i think it'll really kind of open up uh, the possibilities of, of what they could be doing
0: Definitely. And it's funny, I, I actually spoke with Dan recently and we were discussing that that particular challenge. And it was meant to be a challenge. Like you do that for whatever one month, whatever the time frame is, and then you do something else. Like it was just meant to be a challenge. And people took it as, well, you know, if I'm used to doing 500 swings a day, I have to now do 500 swings a day for the rest of my life. Like it was it became just how they trained. Well, that's burning the engine too hot on a consistent basis. There are things uh, Pavel loves to tell an old Russian joke that uh, you can eat any kind of mushroom once. <laughs> uh, you know, we we can you can hit a high volume challenge, and it's gonna get you a different effect. it's gonna it's gonna be fun, but that doesn't mean you need to train like that for the rest of your life. Um, I think sometimes challenges, get misinterpreted into a new way to train and then it never goes back to a more balanced uh, sort of situation
1: yeah and that's exactly you know and, and that's exactly how i'm approaching it. i'm just kind of like okay i want something to do and i just looking at my notes real quick and, and i'm about a third of the way through you know, and I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to kill myself. And after I get to, to 10,000 reps, I think his goal was 10,000 reps in a month. After I hit 10,000, I'm not going to hit it in four weeks, but I just, you know, figured that's a nice round number to, to achieve. i will probably go back and I haven't, I'm not doing barbell work right now. So after I do the kettlebell stuff, I'll probably circle back and start playing with the barbell again for a little bit.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, you break the year out into either four 12 week uh, cycles or smaller. Uh, um, and you pick a different goal for each of those. Uh, you have a nice rotation. It's kind of like you know, what's available in the store if you stick with what's in season. Uh, and we don't live like that anymore, right? We have access to anything we want, anytime we want it, because it can be shipped in. It can be flown in. If you go with a little more of what's in season and what's available, you have a rotation of foods to your diet uh, that is very healthy, And we can bring that rotation of goals, lifts, emphasis
1: uh, to our training as well. And that's one thing I've advocated for years. Is I've tried to get people thinking about as the seasons change, your training, you, whatever you're doing for your fitness should change. You, the season's about twelve to thirteen weeks, and so you hit mm-hmm. that. You know, it's, it's funny. You know, this is our first conversation, and it, it's and I really appreciate it because you know it's nice to see, even though you and I, you know, haven't worked with each other before, it at least lets me know it's a validation that. Uh, the mindset I've been using has been something that's based in science. And that's what you're going to hear. I think for listeners, when you when you talk to a good trainer, when you talk to a good t- coach, and when you talk to somebody that has that technical experience, it should be consistent with uh, what other people have said. You know, mm-hmm. if, if somebody is coming out at you telling you to do X, Y, Z for fitness, and, and you can't find and if you haven't heard anybody else say the same thing. You shouldn't listen to them, but when you talk to good people who know what they're doing, you're going to hear a lot of the same stuff, which is lift hard, lift well, and recover well. Would that, about sum it up. Yep. Would you agree with that?
0: Absolutely. All Absolutely. Right. And dare I say, training should be fun.
1: <laughs> Enjoy what you're doing. I, I think that's the key part. Well, Brett, thank you very much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Um, Brett Jones, and your title is the... Uh, chief instructor for Strong First. Chief instructor for Strong First. I'm going to have the website for Strong First as well as a trainer locator. So if you're lo- if you're interested in in learning the technical aspects of weightlifting, you can definitely get there with a the Strong First trainer, and you can find that in the show notes. So thanks for your time, Brett. Awesome. Thank you, Pete. It's great to have
0: the chance to chat and uh, with you and your audience.
1: One of the fun things about that conversation is that Brett is a serious guy. Well. Sort of serious. I mean, he comes across as serious, but he does have a sense of humor. And what I love about this conversation, and I really enjoyed listening to it again, is hearing that the fact that, you know what, sometimes it's okay not to try to push yourself. Right? I mean, we all get stuck in that trap. We think we got to work out. And I don't know about you, and I still do this from time to time. Maybe I, well, I don't go out right now. I'm recording, I'm re-recording this in the the summer of 2020, where some restaurants are open, anyway... We Sometimes when we have a habit, we overindulge, maybe we have an extra drink or two, maybe we eat a little bit more than we know we should have, we tend to beat ourselves up the next day at the gym. We tend to kind of punish ourselves and try to work out harder. That may not always be the best thing. So when we listen to this interview, it's nice to be reminded that sometimes we can take it easy and we don't always need to push ourselves with every single workout, but we want to have a smart and effective approach to exercise program design. Now, if you want to learn how to do that, then you can pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. Yes, I have programs available. I have eBooks available for sale. If you look in the show notes, and I'll be promoting those on my, on my website. And if you want to learn, hey, if you want to learn great stuff, go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. Sign up for my website. I'll send you a chapter from my book for free. That's right. If you go to PeteMcCallFitness.com, I will send you a chapter from Smarter Workouts for free. Get a free chapter from Smarter Workouts. You also get a workout from Smarter Workouts, so you get to try it before you buy it. That way, if you like it, hey, pick up a copy. Learn how to design exercise programs for yourself, whether you're at home or when we get back to the gym. Again, it was a lot of fun to revisit this interview. It's a lot of fun to bring it back to you. All I'm trying to do is, as I'm growing the podcast, as I'm growing the numbers and gaining new listeners, I want to expose you some phenomenal Terrific conversations I've had with some of our industry's leaders. Again, it was a lot of fun to revisit this conversation. And you know what? It doesn't matter whether it's 2017, 2007, 1997. A lot, this information, not a lot, this information, all this information is still relevant. Strength training has been around for a little bit more than 120 years, ever since the era of physical culture in the late 1800s. Yes, we know more about how it affects the body, but guess what? The basic principles don't ever change. If you lift heavy, give yourself a time to rest and recover. If you don't want to lift too heavy, just move, get out, move, burn some calories, do something. Because when it comes to exercise, a little bit of something is certainly a lot better than a whole lot of nothing. If you want to stay connected, reach out to me. I'm on Instagram, Pete McCall underscore fitness. If you're looking for great exercise ideas, if you're looking for great exercise information, I got a lot of free content up on my YouTube channel, All About Fitness Podcast. That's the All About Fitness Podcast channel on YouTube, where I'm putting content out to help you learn how to use exercise and fitness to enhance your quality of life. You can always reach out to me and connect me, DM through Instagram, again, Pete McCall underscore fitness on Instagram, or just bypass that and email me directly, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's pete at petemccallfitness.com. As always, thank you for stopping by. And I certainly look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.